Okay, we have reached the end of yet another season of Star Trek Voyager. Now, for the listeners out there, I don't remember if Richard said this on an actual podcast or if it was just in in, in a side conversation, but he said that this was a pretty good season of television, and I agree, but I also would want to amend that and say that I think this was a pretty good season of television for Seven of Nine. You know, uh... In hope and fear, we will talk a little bit more more about that because I felt it was a relatively cohesive season in a lot of ways. It was a season with a lot of moving parts, but it is true that season four is largely the story of Seven of Nine going from Borg drone to somebody who is symbolically graduating adolescence in a way. And yeah. It, yeah, it, the the bulk of the season has been characterizing her and showing her journey, and I thought it was I I had a looking back, I had a really great time with season four. I think this might be my favorite season of Voyager so far. That's an interesting statement, and I I actually think that that's not very controversial because I I do feel like there's a lot of Voyager fans out there that really appreciate the show when Seven of Nine comes on. Yeah. That, that's kind of sort of the the canonical or fan favorite uh, version of Voyager, and I I'm with them. I mean, I like the character of Seven of Nine a lot. Obviously, yeah. one uh, basically is just her for most of the episode. I I appreciate Jerry Taylor's performance as Seven of Nine. She's brought a lot of dy- dynamism to the show. She's brought a lot of drama to the show, yeah. frankly. And I think she's really brought out both the best and the worst in in Catherine Janeway. But the other thing about the, the fourth season of the show, of course, is that this is Jerry Taylor's last season. Brandon Braggett takes over um, next season, so next week. But in large, I, I think a lot of what it has to do with is that And you can see it in one where the show is becoming, and I don't want to say increasingly uninterested in the other characters because Mm. we had a, we had a very good Neelix episode this season. We had an okay Harry Kim slash Tom Paris episode this season. We had a pretty good Bellana Torres episode this season. There, there have been episodes I think for each of the characters. Chakotay had Nemesis. Um, But for the most part, they all got one and seven of nine got multiple episodes and the character the characters aside from seven of nine are pretty much they are where they are and this is pretty much who they are at this point and they're never really going to get that much different yeah no it it it, it, since early on in tng star trek has been been very uninterested in having a main character um I seem to remember TNG starting off with, okay, it was largely the Captain Picard show, but then we had a Dr. Crusher episode, then we had a Geordi episode, then we had it, and then they started settling into their, you know, we're just going to kind of pick a character and it'll be their episode and somebody else will have the B-plot. DS9 ran with that even further. Um, But yeah, it seems like almost every other episode is a Seven of Nine episode this time around, and it's past the point where I know we said at the some of the earlier episodes, like, well, Seven of Nine's the new toy. Everybody's excited to, you know, once they once things settle down, once they've written a couple, once everybody's written a, an episode or two for the character, uh, they'll kind of go back to. Well, they it's the end of the season, and they haven't really gone back to anybody else yet. And I'm curious to see if that will shift in, you know, season five. We'll say, right? I mean, yeah. I, I think that, you know, you I think you know my, my thoughts on that or my opinions on that. I, I like the Brian and Braga seasons of the show. Um, I also really like season two, for example. I think yeah. season two is, is really underrated. Um, and, you know, people should go back and, and, and watch season two of Voyager again if they haven't, because I had a, I had a lot of fun with it. And I, I found a lot of really interesting things about it. But like season four is... is Well, I, I would argue that... You know, season two tried to tell the complete story, but didn't quite. I think um, season four was a season four felt a lot more deliberate. Season four felt a lot more cohesive than season two did, but season two certainly had a lot of ambitions for that. Again, you know, yeah, I would say season two had more ambition than than this version of the show, but this version of the show feels closer to the version of the show that they always wanted to make. Yeah. And and it also, I mean, 
Season four didn't really have any outright bad episodes. I, I can't think of one off the top of my head, and I'm even looking at a, a list right now. I mean, vis-a-vis maybe comes the closest with Tom Paris getting you know taken over by the guy or whatever. Um, oh, yeah. That wasn't great, but it's and well concerning flight wasn't great either i guess i'm I'm contradicting myself but there wasn't really anything where you watch it and you're like slack jawed like a lot of season one of tng for example or threshold from season two or anything like that i mean there was really yeah. nothing like that and even concerning flight i can't say was a boring episode at the very least it had john rice davies hamming it up as leonardo da vinci and if it was stupid it was like no it was like very few other tr- trek episodes in a way uh so at least at least was because it was a doctor who episode yeah <laughs> again and i think our listeners know our thoughts on doctor who these days but um <laughs> yeah i it, it was something different and if it, it it was an interesting failed experiment i would say i yeah i would agree with that i mean i i think also another failed experiment this season was the Herogen mini arc i, I don't well, think that for yeah. the time they spent on it 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 kind of ended with a big wet fart i, I don't yeah i you know i think the Herogen were interesting but the more time we spent with them the less interesting they got because they were only sort of developed sort of skin deep and then it resulted in a world war ii cosplay and you're kind of like really okay yeah but, but i but i i'm about to point out that we've we're not talking about one, and I wonder if that's significant. Is it just that there is a lot of interesting stuff to talk about on the overarching season? I mean, one I thought was a very good episode, but I'm not sure I have a ton to talk about it. Well, one is difficult, I think, because... And I'm glad you mentioned that because I was about to transition over to one. So good job, Richard. Um, I, I'm starting to learn your like style of have when and how you do these things, so... I don't know. I, I liked one a lot. I, yeah. I, I'm not as as longtime listeners of Trek about will know. I am a huge uh, a huge. I, what's a What's the opposite of a fan like a non fan? A I, I don't hater. Know. A hater. There you go. Um, like the kids say a hater. Uh, I, I'm a hater of dream imagery in, in television shows and movies. It has to be done extraordinarily well for me to care about it. And most times it feels very, very perfunctory. And the dream images slash hallucinations in this episode, I don't think are really any different from that. Uh, but aside from that, I, I like the I like this episode a lot. Well, I would say the hallucinations in this number one are they're a little more justified in that all of the tech is going wonky in this episode, and so her ocular and auditory implants. Yes, there's going to be glitches there, and that's going to cause. Very vivid hallucinations. But it's also going with the major character themes of this episode, which is that Seven of Nine is somebody who has been used to billions of people around her at all times, has gone into a much more quiet environment, and who is that's even paired back to where it's just her by herself. And she is flipping out at this. I mean, this is the first, this is the most agitated we have seen Seven of Nine. The only time she came close was, I think, dealing with 8472. She is not, and I buy the hallucinations because she is at this point of massive, massive stress. And they're not that weird of hallucinations either. They are for the most part, seeing Tom Paris wandering the corridors and hearing voices and seeing somebody who is not there because she's, again, that desperate for companionship and she has externalized her fears into... Yeah, It's not as if we are seeing, for for example, the raven. It's not as if we're seeing birds flying around or, or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's fair. I mean, I, I do want to be clear that I yeah. think the, the hallucinations in this episode thematically serve a purpose, of course. Yeah, I, yeah. I'm just not a fan of, of the sort of, like... You know, I don't know, creative writing 101 school of the one... having a hallucinated character talking to someone else. It just feels kind of perfunctory to me. Uh, I, I I did like the Tom Paris yeah. is sort of like, you know, disappearing down the hallway and stuff. That made sense. And what what's interesting about one to me and what's interesting about, about the character of Seven of Nine and, and how the show has really portrayed her is that um, that was really something actually you said earlier where she is sort of coming into her adolescence in a way. Yeah. Because that's what I thought in Hope and Fear. Oh, my um, God. You know, yeah. when, when, but, you know, we'll, we'll talk about that when we get to that episode. But for this episode, I mean, one of the things that I have appreciated about Voyager on this rewatch is that 
I think of all the Star Trek series that that we have watched so far, and and honestly, perhaps all of the Star Trek series, because um, at this, you know, we only have two more to go, uh, unless they decide to do another spinoff. God forbid. Um, <laughs> is I really appreciate the fact that Star Trek Voyager really likes to do these sort of high concept science fiction mm. uh, yarns. And this is no different from a lot of the other ones that we've seen. You know, the, the Mutara Nebula, well, Mutara, Mutara Class Nebula, which is a nice callback to, to Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Um, I guess they named Mutara, the Mutara Class Nebula after the Mutara Nebula. Um, huh. That they decide that they want to go into these stasis pods, and then Seven of Nine and the Doctor essentially have to run the ship for a month. I think that's an interesting choice, and I think that that's only something that a standalone series can get away with yeah and also i would say that i i i mean it's such a brilliant choice to have an episode be about this because this is certainly the culmination of seven of nine's arc this entire time she goes from a borg drone to somebody who mutinies at one point somebody who too literally being the only one in charge of the ship the one that Janeway and everybody trusts enough to take care of them. That's very powerful. And let's also take the Doctor's arc in that he starts from a hologram that most people don't respect to, again, being the only one who's able to care for everybody, being the one that everybody is literally trusting with their lives. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I also think it's, I mean, it obviously it's, it harkens back to um, other episodes that the Doctor had to sort of like rescue them all, right? I mean, we, we, we've seen this happen before, most recently, I think, in, in Message in a Bottle. But, Which is something that Star Trek ha- does a lot. It's certainly there have been uh, data episodes like this and Odo episodes in which the character who is not human and has an ambiguous relationship with humanity and who is desiring to become human, and that is something that both could apply to both the Doctor and Seven, um, is for whatever reason physically – because of their non-humanness, they are physically able to survive a situation that the rest of the crew cannot. Uh, again, that was something Data did a lot. That was something Odo did a lot. And I think it's an interesting angle for that character to go in. Yeah, it is, and I also think that that I, it's not something that I would have would have foreseen when Seven of Nine first appeared. Because you know, certainly you could make an argument, and I'm sure people have made this argument before that the the stated reason for why Seven is not affected by the the radiation from this nebula is a little is a little nebulous. Haha. Uh, I, I I didn't even. I don't care. Ca- yeah, I was going to say I didn't even catch it. They basically hand wave it away by saying like her Borg implants yeah. are protecting her or something, or it's not the, the radiation isn't affecting her, and it's like I don't I don't really care. Yeah, why it doesn't she's matter. Okay, I mean that's enough for me. It, really, what what I'm interested in is this episode's uh, you know symbolic thematic resonances yeah. with the direction and the development of the seven character, and this is a perfect place to leave her going into the season finale because. You know, it, it, it's not incidental, of course, that this episode starts out with the Doctor and, and Seven, the revisit of this idea that the Doctor is giving her lessons in how to essentially conduct herself in, in, in social situations. And she's really bad at it, right? I mean, there that scene is funny. And I think that Seven has also brought some, some much-needed levity to the show, frankly, um, that can't be brought by Tom Paris, because I've never thought that Tom Paris was particularly funny, even though the show really wanted me to think he was for a long time. Seven of Nine is a character who's funny because she's not funny. Right, she's she's the straight woman essentially, and and everyone around her is reacting to her being ridiculous. I like that scene a lot. And then, of course, once they get to the Doctor and Seven of Nine having to run the ship all by themselves, this is really the point at which the episode crystallized for me because essentially Seven is relying on the Doctor for a companionship when he is the one that is teaching her all these social skills. And the doctor himself is not necessarily someone that I would say should be teaching anyone social skills, but at least Seven comes out of it okay, I guess. Yeah, and, you know, the doctor's not bad at social skills, but he he definitely has the demeanor of somebody who had to learn this. In other words, 
everything we've seen about Tom Paris, he's a natural charmer. He can get by. He can smooth talk anybody, even. Somebody like Janeway, who we wouldn't say is as slick as Tom is, is somebody who is very comfortable leading people, talking to people, working with people, doing diplomacy. And neither the Doctor nor Seven came from that place to begin with, but certainly the Doctor has felt it important enough to work at it. And the the main block with Seven of Nine is that she still... And maybe this episode this episode is kind of the moment where this crystallizes for her. Um, up till this episode, she has not understood the point. Why would I be so? I mean, this is a woman who, when she was given charge of her own section, remade a Borg colony in there, remember? You know, with yeah. <laughs> Harry Kim is like three of five. No, you're demoted to one of eight or whatever. Yeah, no, absolutely. I I totally agree with that. And I I think that's why it's such an interesting choice for this episode to ratchet up the tension on on Seven throughout the the month period that that they are trying to get through this nebula. You know, because, of course, initially it starts out and the Doctor and she are flitting around doing their wonderful uh, diagnostics and stuff, having a grand old time. The Doctor is pulling her into sickbay to do her her practice and all this kind of stuff. And, And then the Doctor's mobile emitter conveniently fails and he's stuck yeah. in sick bay and she's having these you know I- increasing hallucinatory effects of this nebula and she is getting more and more and more isolated and she is having to rely on herself more and more i mean the scene that i uh keep thinking back to that really affected me the most i think is when she's sitting alone in the mess hall and it just pulls out to the empty mess hall and it's yeah. her sitting alone in the dark and she can barely bring herself to eat her weird paste or whatever the hell Uh, she's drinking she's drinking soylent basically yeah basically so so seven of nine is essentially like a venture capitalist from san francisco which kind of makes sense um well if it's moldy you know you shouldn't drink it if the company doesn't need to give you a product that is safe that would totally be a seven of nine like viewpoint yeah seven of nine would be (laughs) a libertarian um that's why she and janeway don't get along Oh my god. I just broke this wide open. Uh, um but essentially like what the one problem if I can even call it a problem or the one sort of misstep that I think the episode takes is this this side quest thing I guess of this alien hallucination who's not actually there. Yeah. And there's this I have to be careful talking about this because I don't want to come across as sexist, but like there's there's a strange impulse in this episode to put the pretty blonde yeah. woman in a like vaguely sexually menacing situation. And I, it just makes me uncomfortable. A- am I wrong? Am I reading those scenes wrong? Uh, no, there is definitely uh, – well – Here's the thing. I don't know if we are reading – because I read Sexual Menace into that scene as well. And I don't know if we're reading it because it is there, because that is the theme that they are putting in there, or because most media, when you have a woman alone threatened by a man, has resonances of sexual violence and we're just in that habit. In other words, if we are putting Tom Paris in the situation where he is alone – and just frankly as helpless as her uh because one person entirely alone on this on a ship with an alien who does want to kill you is a big dangerous situation uh would we be reading those kinds of would we be reading that much more neutrally if it was tom paris or tuvok or uh i don't know would be re- would we be reading sexual medicine to that scene if it was janeway or balana i guess these are my questions uh, yeah I'm- <sighs> Balana probably yes. Janeway, I don't think so, just because I think Janeway would probably eat that guy, if you know what <laughs> I mean. Like I'm not I'm not worried about Janeway at all, ever. No. Like she can take care of herself and you know. Not not to say that Seven can't take care of herself. Now that I'm saying that, it almost sounds weird. But no, I know what you this mean. is also something that the show does though, because it did it a few episodes ago in retrospect, the episode where Seven had these false memories that the doctor sort of implanted in her head or or, or created or interpreted weirdly. You know, we, we can't overlook the fact that that Seven is a 
buxom, beautiful blonde woman, and the show is very aware of this fact and is going to use her in a very particularly culturally uh determined sort of way sometimes and even if it's not explicit because this is 90s Berman era star trek this is a family show as much as as any star trek is it it, it is pushing the line a little bit more i think into something that that comes across as strange to me and yet i do wonder if that is part of Again, this is the era, this is around the time that Buffy has started. This is a time where girl power feminism is very popular. And again, we've talked about the issues with girl power feminism, but I think there is at this point in culture, it was felt to be a feminist act to put a blonde woman in a menacing, threatening situation and have her kick ass and get out of it. And I wonder if that's part of what they're trying to do here, too. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I actually think that's a really good point, and I, I, I think that that may be the case. You know, I, I don't know. Jerry Taylor wrote this episode. I, yeah. I, I don't know. And Jerry Taylor, you know, not that she wasn't a, a talented woman, but she also wasn't a woman of a certain age. I mean, I think at this yeah, point yeah. she was in her late 50s or early 60s. So I, I don't know how well-versed she was in the sort of, like, youth culture of girl power. But maybe she was. I mean, that was her job, after all. And um, and let's not... And, and again, you don't even need to be in the youth culture. I mean, we are talking on our other podcast, tuning in about the X-Files, and certainly we have seen a lot of problems in the way that certain writers have treated Scully. But for the most part, having Scully be competent and kick ass and be able to fight the bad guys as well as Mulder can is that Jerry Taylor has seen a couple episodes of the X-Files, let's face it. So she that this may just be the strain of where culture is going at this point of time. I yeah, I, I think that's fair. And I mean certainly as as much as I came to to appreciate Troy and and really feel that yeah. a lot of the hostility that the fan base still has to Troy, which, you know, whatever, uh it's been thirty years, give it up, um, is is due to misogyny because I found Troy to be a mostly well written character. Uh, aside from a couple of things, but that the TNG did put her in a position of um, sexual menace a lot more than I think Seven of Nine ever was. So maybe that's a point in the show's favor. It could be. And again, as mu- as well-rounded of a character as Deanna Troy is, as capable as she is, she's not a warrior in the way that Seven of Nine is. She just- true, true. Well, uh, I think we would be remiss if if we did not briefly touch on and talk about because um, actually the, both this episode and Hope and Fear, the season finale, feature episodes which I have come to call the the Chicote Corner. Yeah. Like, oh. What I, what I like about it is that you know Chicote is a character that I don't know ever gets a ton of screen time, and and very famously, uh, Robert Beltran used to complain a lot about you know the the lack of media material that he was given, but. Uh, it's kind of nice to see the show stick with Chakotay as the, I wouldn't even call it sounding board. He's really the, he has opinions. Wow. He exp- he expresses them to Janeway, especially about seven in this episode about, do you think she's ready? And, and Janeway gives her arguments and he's convinced. And I, I just think it's a nice scene. He comes closer to playing devil's advocate in a way. Uh, he does find it very weird that Jane Way has such a belief in Seven of Nine that she does believe she can be redeemed, and he recognizes that this is kind of one of Jane Way's obsessions. He finds it one of Jane Way's idiosyncrasies. He doesn't understand it. He doesn't get it. He doesn't know why she's fixated on Seven of Nine. If it were up to most of the crew, they probably, number one, wouldn't have taken her on the ship in the first place, but number two, certainly wouldn't have kept trying—most people would have given up halfway through the season. Um, Yeah. But if Janeway says, listen, uh, here's my reasonings, and this is something I feel important, Chakotay does know enough to say, all right, well, you're the captain, and you've thought this through. Now that I've, I've brought up my op, my opposition to this, uh, you've thought about it. You, I, I mean, Chakotay is really comfortable with having his thoughts on the matter 
dismissed in a way just because he knows that Janeway has an answer for all of those. If she didn't have or she hadn't considered that or she hadn't, then I think Chakotay would be having a different conversation with her. But he just kind of wants to make sure that she's thought this through. And most likely Janeway already has thought this through. It's his job to make sure that 1% of doubt is dealt with. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. And I mean, I I think that Chakotay functions very well in that role. And I actually always, not that I look forward to those scenes, because you never know when they're going to pop up. But, you know, when you do get a briefing scene in this show, you know, more often than not at this point, you know that Chakotay is going to hang back and he's going to talk to Janeway. And those scenes are always very enjoyable, I find. And in a way, it's a, because we've talked a bunch about, well, why doesn't she have these conversations with Tuvok? And I think it's, I'm beginning to realize she talks to Tuvok when she's feeling much more doubtful about a situation. When she, it's not not quite that she goes to Tuvok for advice, but when she is in a, when she's in a crisis, when she has doubts, when she doesn't know quite the way to go, she's the, she'll talk to Tuvok and that conversation will kind of get her head back on straight. Uh, When she talks to Chakotay, Chakotay is the one that... Uh, Chicote is who she talks to when she's a little more sure about a situation and she needs to explain to some she needs to sell somebody on an idea in a way she's never really she doesn't really sell Tuvok on ideas as much as she sells Chicote on them I think that's true, yeah, because, you know, those those briefing scenes essentially, you know, that end in Chakotay uh, talking to Janeway are always ones where Janeway says, okay, here's the information we have and here's what I've decided we're going to do. And Chakotay comes up and says, hey, are you sure you want to do that? And she says, yes, and here's my idea. Here's my reasoning yeah. why. And he says, okay, great. Or I don't agree with that, but you're the captain, so let's do it. Um, but you're right. Like, she doesn't do that to Tuvok because she relies on Tuvok to sort of I think help her sift through or, or, or yeah. give her a different perspective on something, which, which is an interesting, I think that's an interesting, it's an interesting concept for the two characters and, and, and not one that I ever noticed. So good job, Richard. Yeah. Well, she is, there is a lot of gut feeling in her conversations with Chakotay. Logic would say that seven of nine is a Borg drone who doesn't really want to be there. And while she's extraordinarily capable she may or may not be reliable, and this is probably not a great idea, but Janeway just kind of knows that, no, this is right. This is how I feel. This is – and that's something she can easily deal with with Chakotay. Again, she talks to Tuvok when maybe the emotions ha- are a little too strong in her. Maybe they are confusing the issue a bit, and Tuvok's the one who's able to help her realize like okay we need to use logic in this situation or maybe this is a situation where the emotions are important and this is how i am actually feeling about this yeah yeah all right well we should move on to to hope and fear because there's a lot to talk about with that episode but before we do that i do want to take an opportunity to remind all of you the listeners that this podcast is supported by you if you would like to give us a little bit of your money each and every month, please go to patreon.com slash truckaboutshow. One of the reward tiers that we have is a $5 a month reward. Uh, we will give you one extra podcast a month on crazy wide-ranging topics. Um, the one that we just released today, actually, was on uh, a kind of a, a conversation on the differences between Starfleet, the Federation, Star Trek between the Discovery TOS era and the 24th century. Um, so if you that sounds interesting to you, go check it out. Um, thank you very much. All right, let's talk about hope and fear. So this was the episode that really did crystallize this season. This entire season has been leading up to this episode, which, I mean, there are a lot of parts which make up this episode, which are being paid off in this episode. Um, and I guess, so my my roommate came in, I was watching this episode, and he'd seen some of the first few seasons, but hadn't seen any of season four. And so there was a lot like, what what's this? Oh, well, this message was when Starfleet, and they had, oh, well, how did they find, how did they contact Starfleet? So then you have to talk about how... Um, 
the Doctor used that relay network, which means you have to talk about the Herosians, and then you have to talk about the Borg and all of that. And I realized that many of the major episodes have been setting up some very subtle arcs, which are, again, all paid off in this this episode. This is certainly about the culmination of where Seven of Nine has come so far. Uh, again, going from somebody who was a Borg drone who wanted to go back to the Collective to somebody who realizes that this is where I am and this is where I belong and maybe I actually kind of like this. Um, I don't know. This is... It, 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 in some ways, this is a hard episode to talk about, but this did feel like a very cohesive season. This felt all very deliberate. It felt like everything was leading to this episode. Uh, you can't have this episode without the Herosians, without the Borg, without Species 8472. I don't know how planned this all was. I, Knowing how this era of television in particular was written, I'm not sure if it had if, if if it had been planned out that much but it does feel it it all fits too neatly for me to think that this was not something that was very specifically done this way i mean i would say for sure that that some at least some of it was was planned out i mean certainly the herogen mini arcs yeah. were were planned out because they were introduced then reintroduced then we saw them again and again uh in, in very quick fashion so so they obviously were going somewhere with that um, you know, I don't know if if they knew where this season was was going to end up. I don't know if they knew that they were going to go back to to the third season. You know, I'm not sure. And I also think that, you know, it's interesting. You 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 talk about um, the X Files earlier on Tuning In, uh, which you can find at TuningInShow.com, and because that that to me is is how this season worked in the same way that the X Files always worked, where you have this sort of it's a it's a it's a very very clear division between uh standalone episodes yeah. and mythology episodes you know they use this term mythology mm-hmm. to talk about the x-files overarching narrative or overarching plot and that's kind of how this season worked where you would have standalone episodes and then you would have episodes that dealt with the message from starfleet or the herogen or the borg and but it all felt like it was going somewhere. They they kind of like I feel like this episode, you know, if the season finale uh, had not dealt with this, I think it probably would have felt a little weird. Yeah. Now, of course, I don't know that anybody in 1998 was necessarily thinking about this message again. Yeah. It might have been a nice surprise that it it came up again. You know, I, I don't think that Voyager had a very good reputation, um, <laughs> but it was nice to see the message crop up again. And it was nice to, I think, link everything together in this fashion. It's funny because I'll just say this one other thing, because I know I've been talking for a while and then I'll let you respond. But uh, one of the things that I noticed was was we got a, a comment somewhere that was really talking about our characterization of Janeway as sort of recklessly hot-headed in a lot of ways mm. And and they one of the, it was an interesting comment because the person said and I, I wish I could remember their name, um, if it was you like email us and we'll, we'll send you a, a Harry's fruit basket or something. Uh, <laughs> we're, we're not actually going to do that. Sorry, they're expensive. Harry Kim's um, fruit basket. <laughs> I'm Harry Kim, and I finally figured out something to do. It's gift baskets. That they the, this person said that they were never really sure to what degree Voyager was was critically engaging with this portrayal of Janeway. And I actually think that this episode is a pretty good argument for at least they were trying to. You know, there is something a little Wrath of Khan about this, right? Like Khan is somebody that Kirk deals with and thinks he's done and then the movie happens and suddenly this is much more of a thing than he ever realized and he has to deal with certain consequences. And... Janeway finished her 8472 business and, you know, whatever happened, we dealt with uh, – over Chakotay's objections, uh, decided that this was what she was going to do. And for all intents and purposes, other than when they when the member of 8472 was on the ship with the Herosians, um, I don't think she really thought about that. She really never 
thought about that quadrant of space as having people actually living in it, I think. And certainly you think about Borg space. You think about a place where Borg and this interdimensional species are having this horrible war. You're not going to think about anybody who's living there in a way that that land is so corrupted that it doesn't matter almost. And here we have somebody who was living there whose life was completely fucked by Janeway's actions in that episode and who – and here's a connection to the Herosians – was actually hunting them the entire time and got pretty close to succeeding. Yeah. I mean that that I, I, I think it's very funny that you have all of these Herosian episodes where these are the great hunters and – you know, we know what happens to them, and you have this guy who's this entire season has been quietly in the background following them, finding them, and stalking them, and he succeeds. Yeah, yeah. I mean, brilliantly played by, by uh, uh, what is his name? <laughs> Ray, Ray Wise, Weiss, by the way, I, uh, I, in makeup that you almost can't recognize him in. But I have to say, I, like, actually, for no at no moment did I think he was good. I mean, if you're played by Ray Weiss, you're evil. You are so evil, and he's so good at that. <laughs> I know he actually does a pretty good job of playing the sort of like open-hearted, nice yeah. guy. And even then, you're kind of like, "Come on, yeah. you don't see this, Janeway. Something's up here." <laughs> um, but you always but I, think I like think that... this time he's going to be actually be nice. He's gonna, you know, because you want to, you want to like his characters, and you know they're just going to murder you. But I, I I think that the comparison you make to the Wrath of Khan is is tremendously interesting, actually, because Well, I'm tremendously interesting. <laughs> because I think that in a lot of ways, you know, one of the things that we've said about Janeway and a lot of other people have, have said about Janeway as well is that she is very reckless. She is very hot headed, she is very stubborn, and she makes decisions that that seem very out of character for a 24th century Starfleet captain. And if you think about her speech in, uh, uh, I forget the name of the episode, um, the the second season 30th anniversary episode, I think it was that one where she talks about how you know the, the the federation was so much smaller the, the unexplored part of this of the galaxy was so much larger that there were still so many mysteries out there that you know captain kirk and his ilk when they were out there exploring the the alpha quadrant and the beta quadrant they were cut off from the federation they were cut off from starfleet they had to make their own decisions yeah and that's really the same situation that Janeway finds herself in and so in a lot of ways she's a she's a 24th century Kirk in a sense I mean she is a captain who has to make her own decisions who has to do things frankly and and sort of make these these very very quick decisions that that other Starfleet captains just wouldn't do because they have more of a luxury right like yeah we've made this point again and again where we've had a lot of episodes of voyager where if it was an episode of tng picard would have said well we don't know we'll contact starfleet and they'll send 15 diplomats out and we'll figure this out but voyager doesn't have that luxury and and voyager is really on their own and so it is the case that i think Janeway, at least in this episode, makes it very clear that she feels for this character. She feels for Arturus, but she's not going to find herself personally responsible for the destruction of an entire species. Now, is that correct? Is that not correct? I don't know. And I think that I mean, maybe making Arturus' species be essentially the victim of genocide is a bit far, but at least the episode is questioning Janeway's culpability there. Yeah, and it comes to no easy answers with that. I mean, this is Arturus has, seems to believe that well, the balance of power shifted when eight four seven two was there, and maybe. I mean, he almost seems to believe that 8472 would have exterminated the Borg and then gone home. And they wouldn't have touched his people and they would have taken care of the Borg problem for them. Which might not have been the case. And there is no guarantee that the Borg wouldn't have figured out how to beat 8472 on their own and then gone on to Arcturus's planet 
anyway. I mean, part of the... He, he is very much searching for somebody to blame for this horror that has been visited on him. And I, I, I mean, it is very much, it was 8472 and the Borg who destroyed, and mostly the Borg who destroyed his home planet. Not Janeway, but she is somebody that is a lot easier for him to fight in a way. Again, he is able to use his skills to come very, very, very close to succeeding, and it's only happenstance in a way that manages to, you know, unravel his plan. Uh, he certainly can't go after the Borg Collective. Not not, not successfully, no, anyway. Yeah, he, he is looking for revenge and against anybody, and he picks Janeway, and certainly she is responsible for the change in the balance of power in that in that area it is true but is that the same as being responsible for the planet and there is also a notion that he is a victim he may be justified in blaming Janeway Janeway may need to have a have judgment visited upon her for this but what he is doing may be going too far on that. There, There is also that. I mean, where does revenge end? And I think for Arct- I think Arct- the episode is very clear that Arcturus has crossed a line at some point. I don't know that I would entirely agree with that, but I think it's an interesting question because, you know, it's been three or four months since we've talked about the events that are directly referenced in this episode in, in the events of Scorpion, where Janeway yeah. strikes an alliance with the Borg and uh, gives them a, a weapon and, yeah. and gives them a way to essentially wipe out their enemy, and all, all just to get through their space. And it doesn't even really work, which is the hell of it. Um yeah. And I questioned that at the time. You know, I I remember saying, you know, is this a good idea? This doesn't seem like the kind of thing that, that they should be doing. Chakotay certainly didn't think it was the kind of thing they should be doing. I don't think a lot of the other crew on the Voyager probably thought that this was something they should be doing. But Janeway made the decision and they did it. You know, I think that the hell of this episode is that I find myself very sympathetic to Arturus' yeah. arguments. You know, I, I I think that Janeway did make the wrong decision in Scorpion. And I think that, you know, I, I don't know to what degree I'm really prepared to to argue that Janeway is directly responsible for the genocide of his species. But this is the reason the Prime Directive exists, right? This is the reason why it was developed in the first place, and this is the reason why if you're going to violate the Prime Directive, it should not be on this massive of a scale. No, this episode doesn't mention the Prime Directive, but we as Star Trek people who have been watching all this, that is exactly what he is implying. Again, he doesn't know the existence of the Prime Directive. He doesn't have that language, but that is what he's talking about. She should have left well enough alone. Um, and yet it is... I mean, it's it's almost like one of those arguments that's, you know, who's responsible for a shooting? Yes, it's the person who pulled the trigger, but is the gun manufacturer responsible? They, without them, the gun wouldn't exist. It is a very difficult question to answer, and I'm not sure the episode wants us to come up with an answer, but certainly wants it to be... Because during Scorpion, the only people we... The only sides we considered was the Borg, Species 8472, and Voyager. And all decisions that were made were going to affect those three groups. We didn't think about all of the other planets that were involved and all the other people that may be involved. And... In some ways, it actually does come off as Janeway being a little short-sighted for without for not even really talking about them that much. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because the other thing, too, that, that always strikes me, and this is obviously reading into something that the episode doesn't make clear, but, you know, it's her as a species is never named, but, but the Borg designation for it is Species 116. And so... You know, they talk about species 8472. So my my uh, assumption about that species designation, Borg species designation, has always been that that is sequential based on when the Borg first made contact with them. And 
you know, if Arturus a species, a species 116, then that means that they have been around and, and the, the Borg have had knowledge of them for a long time. Okay. But but they have always managed to elude them. And yeah. it it may be a it may be a convenient explanation on Alturus's part that this decision of Janeway's was the precipitating event for the Borg completely annihilating his species. That that seems a little bit yeah. far fetched to me. That's why I think the episode is so interesting because it does have this dynamic here where I am sympathetic to his arguments, but at the same time I feel like he is also not necessarily putting the blame where it really belongs, of course, which is the boar. Yeah, I mean, he uh, does He does say that we've been on the run for them. We've always been able to elude them, but it's been getting harder and harder as the years and decades and centuries have worn on. And, you know, but then 8472 appeared and suddenly the Borg were distracted. And again, he seems to think that... Though this meant that we were going to be safe and it was going to be fine. And it's not like he's saying, well, we were about to evacuate the planet and get the hell out of here for good. And that way, you know, go someplace the Borg would never find us. And then Voyager happened. Like, you almost get the sense that they figured, all right, we're done. We're home free. The Borg are not a problem right. anymore. Uh, and. Well, because I think, you know, implicit. In this entire discussion, and I think very key to this episode's sort of interrogation of the show Star Trek Voyager, if I can use that strong of a, of a term, is, you know, is it in these in the pursuit of home, in the pursuit of a way to get home, how many other species, how many other people's homes is Janeway going to directly yeah. or indirectly be responsible for destroying? And and I don't know that I can answer that question. I don't know that you can answer that question. But I think it's it's interesting that we can frame that question in that way. Yeah, especially that the show has dealt with the possibility of what price is too far to get home? In other words, Living Witness was part of that, where we have an evil version of Voyager where Janeway's going to kill every species in a way that's going to get her home, and that's all she cares about. Or the episode with the simulation of the Maquis, where Chakotay does, the, the hologram of Chakotay is the one who saying, well, I'm going to do anything it takes to get home, and it doesn't... There is certainly a... This show certainly does believe that there is a line that is too high of a price to pay for getting home, that there is a certain core of what it means to be Federation that can be broken in the pursuit of home and that Janeway and everybody are trying their damnedest not to cross it. But I think this episode is saying even that sometimes that price is paid without them even fully realizing it. If... They have been able to figure out if, if in Scorpion they had looked around and said, well, there's this planet, the Arcturians, and they're going to be destroyed immediately. As soon as we get rid of 8472, the Borg are going to assimilate them. Uh, would Janeway's decision have been different? And I think that's right. a piercing question here. Well, because I, I – I, yeah, I, I think that's actually the, a really good clarifying question because – you know, the follow-up in my mind is, I think she would, right? Like, I think if someone had said, look, if you do this, this species' homeworld is going to be destroyed. I think that Janeway would have said, okay, you know what? But is that just plausible deniability? You know, to, to borrow your, your analogy, is that the gun manufacturers just kind of closing their eyes and, and sticking their fingers in their ears and, and humming? You know, I mean, I, I don't know, because... Like gun manufacturers certainly know that their products are killing people and they apparently don't care. I think Janeway would care, but do I think that because I like Janeway or do I think that because I like Star Trek? I I'm not sure. Yeah, there and there's a difference between a gun company and a hammer company, for example. Like I I I Right. Yeah, well yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. And I kind of I kind of like that the show even if it isn't 
quite able to go as deep into that. I think it is certainly giving us a lot of fuel for these kind of discussions. I don't think, I think so. Yeah. They do want us talking about this. Um, the two things I particularly want to talk about are Janeway and Seven of Nine because this is uh, their episode in a lot of ways. And I want to talk a little bit about Belana and uh, maybe Belana's a little more of a detour, so maybe we can talk about that quickly now. Um, there is – I think all of this that we just finished talking about, about uh, consequences and things uh, – the conversation where Janeway is talking to Balan and saying, well, why will you want to get home? You know you're going to face charges. You are in the Maquis. And in that typical seven, like, bluntness, which is yeah. terrible and wonderful at the same time. <laughs> um, and Balana says, basically, listen, I did what I did and I want to get home. All these people want to get home and I will face whatever – consequences I have to deal with. Now, Balana knows full well, number one, what life is like in a Federation prison, right? This is some place that she's going to be in New Zealand in the work camp where Tom Paris was. It's not going to be horrible. And most likely, she will have at least part of her sentence, if not all of it, commuted because uh, of her service to Starfleet and Voyager on this. And let, let's face it, the second that Janeway gets back, she's going to be petitioning for a pardon for Bellana. There is no way that she's not going to vouch for her. Bellana has changed, but that is also part of why Bellana is willing to go. I don't think the version of Bellana from the beginning of the series would be so willing to face trial. No, I, I don't think so either. And, I, you know, that, like you said, that that is a very small scene, but I think it is it is a small indication of, of you know, using Bellana as a means to show how the rest of the crew has grown and changed. Yeah. Because if if Bellana has grown and changed, we know that Chakotay has, we know that Tom Paris has, we know that the rest of the Maquis have. And so, and, and I mean, that kind of does feed into Seven and, and, and Janeway in this episode as well, because I think that Seven's decision to not go to Earth and Janeway's decision to sort of not accept that in a way um it's obviously sidelined because the plot happens and then it turns out that everything was fake anyway but it's very key because to me that really speaks to seven becoming an adult in a way you know she is be, she has really been a child and really been an adolescent in a lot of this season because emotionally and mentally she is she has never really matured and this is her having to mature and she's making her own decisions she is detaching from her mother if i can use that term <laughs> and and she's telling her no you know not for the first time but on something that is very, very significant. This is a decision that she cannot take back. You know, if the Voy if the Voyager crew, let you know, let's pretend for a minute that the USS Dauntless was actually real, yeah. and the Voyager crew beams over, and they're all, they're all ready to go fly back to the Alpha Quadrant, and they do. That's it. I mean, they're never seeing Seven again. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's. Uh, I I laughed when you said you know, detaching from her mother because. That has been kind of the subtext of this season, but I think this episode is explicitly leaning into it. I mean, they're, they're, half of their lines are all, you know, this is a woman with a 16-year-old child, and they're fighting. I mean, they're, at one point, Janeway says, you turned out differently than I expect. At one point, she says, you need to give back. You need to do something around here, young lady, and yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, Seven's all, I, I, I have done that, and... I think it's even fun. Janeway has a mom haircut now. It didn't click to this episode, but she has a mom haircut. That is very true. Yeah. Yeah. They are going to have a Freaky Friday episode. There is going to be one episode where Janeway is going to say, gee, Seven is so pretty and competent. And she knows what she's doing. And Seven's going to say, wow, Janeway really, you know, feels comfortable around this crew. And they're both going to say at the same time, I wonder what if it, what is like to be her. And they're going to switch bodies like this is happening. 
Well, we'll just have to see if that happens. <laughs> but I, I mean, I do, I do think that's really right, yeah. though, because you know, obviously, one of the things that that is key to um, you know a, a child becoming an adult is detaching from their their parents yeah. and and becoming their own person, making their own decisions, and and doing things that would be contrary to their parents' wishes. These, this is all part of the maturation process. I mean, this is why people you know, drink and do all kinds of crazy things, become libertarians, you know I mean? Like, (laughs) so it's really that, but at the same time, there, there is an opportunity here for Janeway to, I don't know that Janeway really understands that because I think that for something as key and as important and as irrevocable as this decision would be, Janeway is very much leaning on the, I am putting my foot down school of parenting and I think that's actually right because, you know, this would be a decision that that Seven would would probably regret for the rest of her life, and and obviously has not thought through. I mean, I I, I laughed when Janeway was like, "What are you going to do? How are you going to live? What do you you know?" And this yeah. is like someone saying, "I'm going to drop out of school and become an actor." You know, I'm moving <laughs> and, to the city and, with my friends, and you can't stop me. And it's going to be great. We're going to have this band. Big it's going to be great. We're going to make. <laughs> yeah, we're going to become famous, and you know, that's really what Seven is doing. Yeah. She, she, I mean, again, this episode, not, not mentally, because she, again, her intelligence is far beyond, but socially, this is somebody who is about 16. And again, I think part of the maturation process, sure, is learning that, yes, I'm different from my parents. I do things differently. I figure out my own way. But I think the other half of that coin is also recognizing that, well, gee, the, it wasn't all that bad. Some of the things they said actually were right, and some of the reasons they do things this way actually kind of make sense. And I think Jane, uh, Janeway, again, is recognizing Seven has her own her own life and her own friends and her own style of music she listens to and uh, her own hopes and dreams and desires. And at the same time, Seven is realizing that perhaps her original desires – may have come from a different place that she is now. Again, beginning of the season, I want to go back to the Borg. I want to go back to the Collective. She's given that golden opportunity, and she recognizes, well, no, actually the life mom wanted for me was is kind of nicer than this, and I actually kind of like this a little better. As much as it may pain and kill and embarrass her to admit that, you know, Jane Wave is right on a couple of things. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I, I guess the, the last thing to, to briefly touch on before we wrap this episode up is I, this is the, the, the capper, I think, to this entire storyline of, you know, yeah. what is this message from, from Earth? Obviously, it, it turned out to be nothing great. Essentially, we're sorry. We can't do yeah. anything for you. Have a nice flight, essentially. And but that puts a, a damper on, I think, the the. Going into the fifth season, I mean, these would be very, these would be very disheartened people, I think, and it's going to be interesting to see if that feeds into the fifth season at all. Yeah, at the same time, they are left with some renewed hope because the slipstream drive is a thing, and they do have some information on it, and maybe it doesn't quite work. But you know, Transwarp also didn't quite work, and. Seven of Nine ends this episode with, I think, a bit more renewed interest in figuring this out. This is another piece. This may le- This may be how Voyager gets home. She may spend the next two seasons tinkering with Transwarp and Slipstream and figuring out how to blend the two technologies together in order to make, make a drive that actually will work. And, again, not only is that a source of further drama in later seasons, but it also, I think, cements that Seven of Nine has committed to going home, going to Earth, because she certainly wouldn't be working on the technology to do that if she didn't want to go. I think it is a little adorable that Harry Kim seems to believe that Earth is such a diverse place with so many aliens that you'll be fine there, you'll have a great time. I mean, I I, I think that's adorable of him. Harry Kim, eternal optimist. <laughs> You're going to have a great time in high school, Seven of Nine. No one's going to make fun of you. You're going to make friends. You're going to join clubs. 
Oh, Harry Kim, <laughs> why are you still on the show? Nobody knows. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we'll call it an episode. If you have any thoughts on either of these episodes, please leave a comment on the post for this episode of the podcast at truckaboutshow.com. As I said earlier, we do have a Patreon. You can find that at patreon.com slash truckaboutshow. It also supports our other podcast, Tuning In. We are deep into the fifth season of The X-Files. This week, we are talking about Emily and Kitsunagari. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, we are there. Truck About Show is our username in all those places. And please, please do leave us an iTunes Apple Podcast review for this podcast. Please. It, it is the so much. best way to get new listeners to listen. That too. All right. Fifth season of Star Trek Voyager next week. Four seasons down, three seasons to go. We've got a new showrunner coming up, yeah? Ryan and Braga. New show. This is the beginning of his tenure. Oh, boy. We are going to be living with Brian and Braga as showrunner for a long time because of the six se- no of the seven seasons remaining of Berman era Star Trek he show runs five of them so oh boy there you go we're going to be talking about night and drone <laughs> <laughs>